0: There are not so many things that Jesus repeated more than once in his ministry that end up in one gospel twice. But here's a message he did repeat. The message is that go out without anything, go out without anything, and a reminder that when you went out without anything, what did you lack? Nothing. But one of the strangest verses in scripture perhaps is verse 36. Then said he unto them, But now, he that has a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. That last part of the verse in particular is odd. Maybe it's not appropriate for a human to call something in the Bible odd. What I want to communicate is that it's different than what I would expect to see in the Bible. But I think I understand it, and I'd like to explain it to you the way I do. Look back at verse 34. And Jesus said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day. Before that thou shalt thrice deny that you know me. What Jesus communicated to his disciples was that when you were working for me, I took care of you. When you put yourself into my service, you had what you needed. But tonight you're going to leave my service. Take good care of yourself. Make sure you have protection. It's a dangerous world out there. Make sure you have money. You're going to need it when you're on your own. The fact of the matter is that when you are serving yourself, and I would say this to Adventists, for example if you're not giving your whole life into the service of God, I might even recommend getting life insurance. I might recommend keeping a gun under your pillow. And I might not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's really safer but what I understand from this is that if you're doing your own thing, take good care of yourself but if you're going to put yourself into God's service you are freed from so many worries and stresses in this world Amen. that promise that Brother DiCarlo read to us from Isaiah 58 He was trying to get through the passage in his allotted time, so he didn't have time to focus on that phrase that said that he'll be our rearward. What it means is, is that God will be our rear guard. That if you will focus on the things he's given you to do, he will guard your back. And the things that are beyond your ability to watch for and to check out, God will take care of those things. It is a mistake when we organize our future life as if God is not going to take care of us. I don't think I even want to say more about that. That's just for someone or someone's here. I'm going to make a significant break from what... (laughs) Someone wants me to speak louder. Did they turn this on? Is that what happened? I'm going to make a significant break from what I've been doing so far this weekend. I've been only giving you Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. I think it's the best thing to do. But I'm going to read to you a testimony from the writings of Ellen White. I hope you don't feel too badly about it. It looks to me like in the 19th century that a lot of sermons were just someone reading page after page after page of Ellen White. And it looks like to me in the first century AD that you might have to sit in church and listen to someone read a letter written by Paul to another church. And that the key thought is if it's true, you ought to be glad to hear it. What I'm going to read to you is an article or part of it, depending on how you respond, called What Was Accomplished by the Death of Christ. It's significant to me for a number of insights into salvation and into the whole plan and how it relates to angels, for example, that I never understood. If I could tell you some things I've concluded after reading it, you might have heard before that if only one person would have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, that he would have come to die for that one. I am now convinced that if zero people would have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, he would have come to die for them to give them a chance. It's right here. I'm going to move this. For those of you who are into um, references and like to look things up and make sure that you weren't lied to, this is from Signs of the Time, December 30, 1889. It says it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in the redemption of the world to save sinners by the blood of the lamb. The great sacrifice of the son of God was neither too great nor too small to accomplish the work. Excuse me just a minute. In the wisdom of God it was complete, and the atonement made testifies to every son and daughter of Adam the immutability of God's law. The value of the law of Jehovah is to be estimated by the immense price that was paid in the death of the Son of God to maintain its sacredness. Just from that paragraph, maybe thoughts you've heard before. When we talk about 1888... And the message that came to our church at that time, if you'll read the writings of Joseph and Wagner, you'll find, and then what Ellen White said about those writings, you'll find a key thought was about the relation of the law to the gospel. I don't remember if it was in a plenary session or if it was over in the other building when I talked about the way or when truth affects us. But because I think it might have been over there, I'm just going to tell you again. Truth does not affect you when you know it is true. Truth affects you when you think about it. It's not when you know that Jesus died for your sins that it softens your heart. It's when you consider the fact that he died for your sins that it softens your heart. It's not when you considered it in the past that it keeps your heart soft. It's when you consider it in the present that it keeps your heart soft. The law of God is a transcript. I'm reading. The law of God is a transcript of His character. It portrays the nature of God. As in Christ, we behold the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, so also in the law, the attributes of the Father are unfolded. Although the law is unchangeable, This having provided a means of salvation for the lawbreaker does not in the least detract from the dignity of the character of God, since the penalty of man's transgression was borne by a divine substitute. Only in your mind I'd like to underline the word substitute. The Father himself suffered with the Son, for God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Man with his human finite judgment cannot safely question the wisdom of God. Hence, it is unbecoming for him to criticize the plan of salvation. Before the theme of redemption, let him lay his wisdom in the dust and accept the plans of him whose wisdom is infinite. If I could comment on that paragraph. You will hear men inside the Adventist church today speak about substitutionary atonement as if it is unjust. As if it's not fair that Jesus would die in place of you. Some of them, to reconcile themselves with this idea, will say that in a very physical way that we were in Jesus when He died. In a very real way, so that when he died, we died also, and there's no really any substitution. Others, trying to harmonize the idea, will say that Jesus died for moral influence, so that by looking at his cross, you could learn about how to live and have it and, and harmonize your life with that kind of character. And, will, and they would say that the idea of substitutionary atonement is, is not righteous or just, And my only comment on that is that the Bible and the testimonies teach substitutionary atonement. And who is smarter than God? And on what basis do we say that God is not just? When angels that excel in strength say, Just and true are thy ways, O Lord God. The only way to know what is just is to know the future. Justice is, is giving what is right in view of what is caused. That did not make any sense. Only I understood what I meant. Let me try that again. If you do, Ron, how much damage it causes determines what level of justice would atone for that. And if you don't believe me, it's perfectly fine. But what I want to tell you is that only God can measure justice. And if God the Father says that Jesus can be a substitute for my sins and that that is just, I would be arrogant to say that it's not just. I'm reading again. God grants men a probation in this world that their principles may become firmly established in their right. Thus precluding the possibility of sin in the future life, and so assuring the happiness and security of all. That's a very profound sentence. What does God grant us? Probation. There are those who speak about the eighteen eighty eight message who would think of that as is downplaying what was accomplished by the death of cross, by the death of Christ on the cross, as if to give me probation isn't something so special or so great, I will tell you it's exactly what was lost for me by the death, excuse me, by the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam did not cause me to be condemned. It cost me my probation in the Garden of Eden. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he wasn't there forever in bliss to, let me say this in a different way so you can follow it, Adam wasn't done when he was in the Garden of Eden. When God was done making Adam physically, he had still a work to do, and that was to give Adam time to develop moral character by making obedient and right and faithful decisions. Adam was on test in the Garden of Eden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not there just to make Satan happy. It was an essential part of the development of Adam so that he could form a righteous character. Or if I could say that in another way, righteous characters aren't created, they're cultivated. Adam was granted probation so he could cultivate one. And if he had cultivated that character until it was secure, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil would never have been a problem anymore and it could have been removed and it would have been. When Adam sinned, I lost my probation. No longer did I have an opportunity to develop a character that would be secure, that would allow me, for example, to interact with heavenly hosts without a chance of sin coming again. Through the atonement, I'm reading again, Through the atonement of the Son of God alone could power be given to man to establish him in righteousness and make him a fit subject for heaven. The blood of Christ is the eternal antidote for sin. Eternal antidote is such a fascinating phrase. The offensive character of sin is seen in what it costs the Son of God in humiliation, in suffering and death. All the worlds behold in him a living testimony to the malignity of sin, for in his divine form he bears the marks of the curse. He is in the midst of the throne as a lamb that hath been slain. The redeemed will ever be vividly impressed with the hateful character of sin as they behold behold him who died for their transgressions. The preciousness of the offering will be more fully realized as the blood-washed throng more fully comprehend how God was made a new how God has made a new and living way for the salvation of men through the union of the human and the divine in Christ. I really just want to keep reading to you, but I'm afraid I'm going to lose you because you're not used to preachers reading to you. Please try hard to listen. The death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death, who was the originator of sin. When Satan is destroyed, there will be none to tempt to evil. The atonement will never need to be repeated, and there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. Listen, that which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen man could not have a home in the paradise of God without the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? It's the next sentence that was such a new thought for me. I had to stop when I read it. Maybe it will be a new thought for you. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. I tell you what I've come to learn as I, I studied the Bible in light of this. After I'd read this, it's not just for sinful beings that by beholding we are changed. Nor is it only for sinful beings that that the sacrifice of Jesus weakens the influence of temptation. I'm reading again. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. You will hear people making fun sometimes of the idea of sinless perfection. Like this, that if you ever reach that position, you would never need you wouldn't need a savior any longer. I just want to tell you the angels are already there and they need a savior still. If you do reach that stage of perfection of character, it will not be your perfection of character that keeps you from sinning. Perfection of character didn't keep Adam from sinning. It didn't keep Eve from sinning. It didn't keep Lucifer from sinning. It will be the efficacy of the cross of Jesus that will keep you from sinning as you consider what was done for you there. I'm reading again. Without the cross, they, the angels, would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven, human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. It's not that because heaven is a perfect place that you won't sin there. Also, Eden was a perfect place. And also heaven was a perfect place when Lucifer sinned there. It's the efficacy of the blood of Jesus that will make us secure. And it's only that very same gift that will keep us from sinning now. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. The plan of salvation making manifest the justice and love of God provides an eternal safeguard against defection in unfallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Our only hope is perfect trust in the blood of Him who can save to the uttermost all that come unto God. by him the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary is our only hope in this world and it will be our theme in the world to come oh we do not comprehend the value of the atonement that's one of the reasons I'm reading this to you I'm sure it applies to me I don't comprehend it and I'd rather read to you about it than try to imagine that I did If we did, we would talk more about it. That is, if we did value and understand the value of the atonement. The gift of God in his beloved Son was the expression of an incomprehensible love. It was the utmost that God could do to preserve the honor of his law and still save the transgressor. Why should man not study the theme of redemption? It is the greatest subject that can engage the human mind. If men would contemplate the love of Christ, displayed in the cross, their faith would be strengthened to appropriate the merits of his shed blood, and they would be cleansed and saved from sin. There are many who will be lost because they depend on legal religion or mere repentance for sin. But repentance for sin alone cannot work the salvation of any soul. Man cannot be saved by his own works, Without Christ, it is impossible for him to render perfect obedience to the law of God. And heaven can never be gained by an imperfect obedience. For this would place all heaven in jeopardy and make possible a second rebellion. I've read to you half the article. I'm not going to read to you the other half of the article. It's not less helpful than the first half. It's just I don't know how many people can bear it. I think you ought to read it. If you have internet access, you can find it at canvassing.org. Well, you can find it there, canvassing.org. You'll find a bunch of things there, and this article is called What Was Accomplished by the Death of Christ? Let me review to you or review for you what we just what you just heard me read. I guess you have to read it yourself before you're sure that it was written by a prophet. But if I was telling you the truth, and I was Calvary is more significant to us than we understand. Jesus did not die to pay for the sins of angels. He did die to pay for my sin. He was a substitute for me. I need that. I must believe it. That's not all that was accomplished by the death of Christ. Also, God gave to me probation through the death of Christ, the very thing that I lost in the Garden of Eden. The Bible is my tree of life. That thing I used to have or that Adam had there. And the law of God, particularly the Sabbath, is our tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have today to do the same kind of thing that the Adam had to do in the garden, to form a type of character that is secure. Suppose you succeed in that work. Are you done with the cross at that point? Once you formed that kind of ideal and character that will never that would rather die than sin, are you done with the cross then? You won't be done with it ever ever. I mean never ever. It will be for eternity that the cross will be the safeguard against another apostasy. It will be the reason why there's no need for another Mess like the one that's going on here on planet Earth, then we ought to study that theme until its meaning is such and its value is such that we talk about it more and think about it more. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're looking at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, and verse three, for consider him. Mostly, I want to focus on the first words of both verses, looking unto Jesus and for consider him. What was it that had gone wrong with our church in 1888? If you would be happy to hear someone else's opinion, I'll give you mine. That's a rare thing. I don't like to even share my opinions. But this one I feel to share because I think it's right and I think it's not just a guess. We, as a church, in 1888, if you gave us a quiz, true or false, Jesus died for our sins we would put true. True or false, we can earn our way to heaven by obedience, we would put false. True or false, Jesus never sinned, we would put true. And, and you could go down through a line of facts about salvation, and we would basically do okay on this quiz. But we were treating the truth these truths, very much like times tables. Once you know them, you're done with them. You don't have to think about them anymore. Even if you use them for your benefit, it's not with a lot of meditation that you do it. Yet these facts are not like times tables. It's not when you know them as facts that they change you. It's the time that you spend thinking about them that changes you. What I'm saying is also true about the judgment. Although the judgment is a very different type of fact. But it's just as true and just as changing of the life when it receives proper attention. If you know that we're in the judgment, this is a good thing. It, doesn't, it isn't so good a thing. It's just better than not knowing it. But if you think about the fact that you live in the judgment, that will change you. There's something else from these two verses I want to call your attention to, and that is the name of Jesus as author and finisher. If you're interested in a a heart warming, precious truth type message that happens to be present truth at the same time, you could do a study in the Ellen White CD-ROM on author and finisher. You would just find so much. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. You would find that this is the source of your assurance in Christ. Assurance is preached backwards a lot today. But there is a forward way to preach it. If you were to ask me, Eugene, are you going to go to heaven? Are you sure? Though I'm afraid some of you wouldn't like this, I would say yes. But it's not because I'm confident at all in me. I'm very unconfident in me. That's why I don't like to tell you my opinions. But I'm very confident in this verse. Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith. And I can hold on to that with my spirit. I can depend on that and lean on that. That he will finish the work that he started. And that is a ground or security for my faith that makes a difference for me. I'm looking for a verse. Just give me a moment. Verse 15. Hebrews 12 and verse 15. It says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Looking diligently at what? At Jesus that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. What is the antidote to you developing a bitter spirit? It's looking diligently. But I'm afraid that we look something so different than diligently that it's almost haphazardly. I don't know if you understood that. I'm going to say it again. It ought to be a methodical and consistent effort in your life to be thinking about the cross of Jesus and the sacrifice that was made for you if it's going to have the impact in your life that it needs to have. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. That was almost the end of that sermon. I'm about to preach the second one. Romans chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 17. It says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. After the parenthesis, before him whom he, that is, before him whom Abraham believed, listen, even God, who quickens the dead and caused those things which be not as though they were. I alluded to this yesterday when I used the silly illustration about the ceiling being some funny color. I was trying to contrast for you the difference between the word of man and the word of God. What Romans 4 says is that God speaks of things that are not as though they were. An example of that is when Jesus is referred to as the Son, even before the creation of the world. Maybe I just confused a lot of people. If you have that ribbon thing, why don't you put it here for a minute, and I'm going to digress. To try to inoculate you against some silly ideas that are going around in the United States. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, and we're going to look briefly at verse 7. This will not seem related to anything I've said, and it's not. It's just something added in the middle. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. A valid question for us is what day was it that the Father said to the Son, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. Maybe we could give a multiple choice. Someday, far, far back in the reaches of eternity. That was Wagner's view for some time. Or, when Jesus was born of Mary. Or, the answer, which is found in Acts 13, verse 33 and 34. Acts 13... Verse 33 and 34. God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that He hath raised up Jesus again, meaning the resurrection, as it is also written in the, what does it say? Second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, when was it the day that the Father said to the Son, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? It was at the resurrection. That's what you learn from Romans 1, where it says he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Or if I could say it in another way, Sonship in the Bible, I'm afraid I can't do it in five minutes. so I'm going to try my very fastest. Sonship in the Bible existed long before there were humans that had babies. When Mary had her eldest son, that was the first time in the history of the universe that the word son was used to refer to something that came via... Birth. Before that, son always referred to similarity in character. That's why Adam was a son of God. That's why there's a seed of the serpent. That's why you even have a whole class pillar called a brood of vipers. This is why Jesus said in John 8 to people that if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. That's why Job speaks about the sons of God that shouted for joy when the earth was created. Sonship existed long before there was something like birth. It referred to similarity in character. And God created beings to be his children, meaning they were similar to him in character. But none of them were similar to him in every way except Jesus. By the resurrection, by raising himself to life, he showed that he had divinity. In that respect, he was different than every other son of God. Only he was like the Father in that respect. So when did the divine... When was it that the Father said to the divine nature of Jesus, Thou art my son? That was at the resurrection. Also, the human nature of Jesus is called a son when he was born. That's a different issue altogether, and knowing that will save you much confusion in some parts of the Bible. But the human nature of Jesus was a son of God in the same way you can be. It's the Romans eight fourteen way. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It wasn't Jesus, the son of Mary, that was the only begotten Son of God. I mean, that was a funny way to say that truth. It wasn't the human baby of Mary. It was the, the divine nature of that baby that was the only begotten Son of God. I don't think I want to take a question on this. I'm, I'm just afraid I'm going to get way off. What? Oh, baptism? That's when it was declared, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee was at the resurrection. It's just simple, Acts 13, 33. Well, you might wonder why I got off into all that point. It was just for a simple thing. It's because Satan is causing so much confusion over this issue that's distracting from so many other more valid points of the faith. And maybe knowing that will save you a problem. But I very thoroughly distracted myself. and don't remember what I was talking about before it. So, I'll just start with an important thing and go from there. What we've said so far is that you ought to give your life. I'm We're in Romans 4. That is where I want to go. Thank you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 4. What we're looking at here is about Abraham, where we want to examine his faith. Abraham, more than anyone else, other than Jesus. And even more than Jesus in terms of verses talking about it, Abraham is a model for us for faith. We end with verse 17 where God speaks about things that are not as though they were. Verse 18 says, Abraham, against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. When was it that Abraham believed what God had to say? It was when it seemed hopeless. There's a virtue in that that you ought to understand. We, maybe I'll tell you a story and help you and help illustrate it. There was a man named Mr. Aldridge that lived in Battle Creek. He was a youth minister. Maybe some of you will think that he would have been hired around here. He liked the true, the true ideas about Jesus dying for our sins. Those were attractive ideas to him. But when Ellen White would write about things like diet and dress, music wasn't such an issue back then. It was an issue, just a different type. Do you know what kind of issue it was back then? It was just giving too much attention to it and kind of silliness in it. I think what's happened today has made it so that we don't think anything about it when people give too much attention to the good stuff. Anyway, that was a real problem back then. When Elmite would write about these things like diet and dress in particular, what Mr. Aldridge thought was those things aren't really the most important things. Maybe in some respects he was right. But what he began to say is that those things aren't the most important things, which is understood and is meant to mean they aren't very important things. Elmite wrote him a letter. You can find it if you'll type in the word Aldridge. No, I don't know a reference. I didn't plan to tell you about it. But what she said makes simple sense. It's very arrogant. I'm paraphrasing what she wrote to him. It's very arrogant for a man. To say that something that God speaks about is unimportant. If God noticed it, that ought to be sufficient for proud mortals to, at the very least, give respectful silence. That's legitimate. It's legitimate to believe that God is wiser than we are and that if He notices something, it's important enough for us to notice. when I'm speaking about this in relation to verse 18, I mean there are things that God says that don't make sense to us. For Brother Aldridge, it was that those things were relevant to life and important for spirituality. It didn't make sense to him, but so be it. God said it. He ought to have believed it. For some people, it doesn't make any sense that Jesus could die in their place. That doesn't seem just. Muslims many times reject at reject Christianity on the basis of substitutionary atonement, to them it seems unjust. But we can't change the gospel for their benefit. We have to believe what God says. Romans 18, the second half of the verse, it says, According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So you know this verse, cursed is the man that trusteth in, maybe you don't know this verse, it's Jeremiah, I think it's 17, I think it might be verse 7, let's look at it, it's not that one, it's verse 5, Jeremiah five? 17 verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. I'll share with you an encouraging and solemn fact relevant to this passage. In the time of Jesus, the population of the world, according to some people who guess and calculate, was about 500 million people. According to some other people, it was 800 million people. And according to a very few, it was 900 million people. Anyway, all those numbers are less than the population of India. When Ellen White was alive, the population of the world was just over 1 billion people. And during the lifetime of most of you, it has gone from, well, of the older ones here, it's gone from 3 to 4 to 5 to 6. Of the middle-aged here, it's gone from 4 to 5 to 6. And even for the youngest here, it's gone from 5 to 6. Population has gone way up. But the number of demons hasn't. It's static. If the demons could man human, humans one to one in the year 1800, there's only one for every six of us now. I don't know if that makes any sense to you mathematically. But it's a fact. I don't know. I don't mean it's a fact that there's one to six. I mean it's a fact that the ratio of humans to demons is six times better now than it was in the 1800s. Demons are not having children. I'm unaware of that fact of 18 hundreds, why is that fact? Let me say it again. I think you'll see it. It's just simple math. There were a billion people then and six billion people now, but there's the same number of demons both times. The number of demons hasn't gone up. So the ratio has, is always going up in our favor. Right. Did that make sense to you what I just said? Who stated that a demon number? No one did, and I don't know it. I'm just saying it's not changing hmm It's the ratio. I didn't want to get into that so badly. But the point I wanted to make is that the devil has adjusted his techniques relevant to this mathematical reality. He works to lead most people to trust in someone, and he focuses all his energies on the someones. The devil is trying to get you to lean on someone... And if he can get enough people to lean on someone, he focuses his energy on the someone. This is his mode of operation now. It's his only hope. Also, you very much bless the world when you go anywhere and do anything good. Because when you go into a community to do something good, the demon force in that community is really in a bind. And most of the people in that area are left much less harassed than they were before just by the very fact that you're there. You don't even have to believe me on that either. What you do need to believe is that cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. That the safety for you now is not to be depending on a person, but to be very much yourself going back to this book until what you believe, you don't only know it's in there, but you know how and where and can show someone. This is very important that we do this. Turn back with me to Romans 4. Maybe you never left it. Romans 4, and we're looking at verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, I want to tell you one thing Abraham didn't think about. It was his own weakness. If you want to have faith, one thing not to be thinking about is your own weakness. Not that you should think you're so strong. You know you're weak, but it's not something to be considering. Because you have the Word of God. The last half of verse 18, you're depending on the Word of God, according to that which is spoken. Abraham's faith has three characteristics we've looked at so far. He believed when it seemed hopeless, when it seemed unbelievable, for example. He believed what God said, and this passage says that he didn't consider his own weakness. He also didn't consider his own past history because he had tried many times to have children with Sarah, and that had never happened. It's possible for us when we come to something God says to conclude that it can't be true because of our past experience. That's not valid. God indicates through Abraham that the faith, his model faith, doesn't consider your own experience. It doesn't consider your own weakness. It considers only what God says. It says, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. I know at least in evangelism we tend to excuse ourselves from success because of the people out there. I remember when I was working in Maine a few years ago. I, I work in the call porter work during breaks many times. We went to Caribou Maine. Do any of you know where Caribou Maine is? Isn't it, you'd lived there? Were you there when I was there? It would have been like nineteen ninety five. I'm glad because you might have been in this story. We canvassed Caribou, Maine, and it went very well. It was one of the easiest places I ever worked in all of New England. The people were spiritual and open-minded. We sold a lot of books, and then we went to church there that weekend. A dear lady that was in that church, I suppose she was dear, I don't know her. I didn't mean that to be funny, but I guess it was. Listen, what I mean by that is this lady was... Found out that we were going to be callporting in Caribou. She didn't know that we had already done it. And she decided to give me a solemn warning that it was very difficult territory, that the people weren't interested in anything. Well, she was just wrong. Then it happened to me last year that I was working in, in south, well, central South Arkansas canvas, an area, we had tremendous success. People were so spiritual, Bible-oriented, wanted to know the truth. Then we went to church, and the lay pastor there found out what we were doing, and he came to commiserate with us. And he told us that to not be discouraged. He knew it was very hard territory. Well, it wasn't. And the only point I'm trying to make to you is that when Abraham didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb, it was a model for you in evangelism not to let yourself off the hook because of other people. To think that it's not going to work here because they don't want it. It's not going to work here because they're not interested. You should just know that really it's an issue of unbelief with yourself. If God promised to help you, and he did. The last half of verse 19, or excuse me, verse 20 He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. How do you stagger at one of God's promises? It's by talking or acting like it's not true. Listen, I'm going to be done in seven minutes, but listen carefully that whole time. When God makes a promise, you can trip over that thing if you talk and act like it isn't so. And one of the promises God made is that all things work together for good to those that love Him then when you talk and act like things aren't working together for your good, you're tripping. Jesus said he's going to be with you to the very end. When you talk and act as if he's left you or abandoned you, that's unbelief. It says, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. David said in Psalm 116, he said, I have believed and therefore, I think he says, we have believed and therefore we have spoken. And say, I have believed and therefore I have spoken. One of those things he says, I think is, I have believed and therefore have I spoken. Paul quotes that verse. Maybe it's 2 Corinthians 4.13. I don't really remember where it's at. And he says, this is the spirit of faith. We have believed and therefore we have spoken. What is the spirit of faith? It's to speak what you believe. If you believe that Jesus is coming back, that's one thing. But if you talk about it, that's the spirit of faith. If you give expression to your confidence in what God is going to do with and for you, that's the spirit of faith. If you keep it to yourself so you don't risk making a fool of yourself by saying something that might not turn out being true, that's unbelief. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. His model faith says you ought to talk and act as if what God says is true. Verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, God was able also to perform. This is the basis of this whole thing. The life of faith is one of confidence in God. Your confidence is there that he can do the very things he said he would do. Listen to verse 22. And therefore it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That is, God said about Abraham... You are righteous. When Abraham lived by faith. When Abraham lived by every word of God, God said, you are righteous. That's incredible. That's what made Abraham righteous. God's word went on a mission and it began to work and to to change Abraham and it worked until it was done. Abraham will be resurrected a righteous man because Jesus said about him, you are righteous when he exercised faith. Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. I'm just going to close with the thoughts in those verses. One thought is that if we will live by faith, God will say about us that we are righteous. It might not be that it's so when He says it, but it will become so because He said it. God's Word is creative in its nature, and the very imputing is an imparting. The imputing is instant, and the imparting takes time, but it happens at the same time. The other thought is that verse 24 and 25 is all about the sacrifice of Jesus. There are lots of things that God said that you can believe, but there's something in particular you ought to hang your faith around if you want it to have the work in you it's designed to have. For Abraham, he, he put his faith around the fact that he was going to be the father of many nations, but that's not what you're to put your faith around. Your faith is to be put around the idea that Jesus was a substitute and surety for you, that he was raised again for your justification. Giving due consideration to those facts will change you We'll continue changing you. And if you understand today you're not done with it, you have to keep thinking about it, not just until probation closes, but until the seven last plagues are over, and then until you get to heaven, and then you'll still have eternity, we're going to have to hold on to it. It's our only security here. It will be our only security in the hereafter. That's what was accomplished by the death of Christ. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for a picture, a true story of Jesus that changes the way that we are. I ask that you will forgive us here for how little we have thought or spoken about the great gift that was made for us, how little we have valued the atonement how arrogant we have been to doubt Your justice, how we've made light of Your counsel. I ask that You would teach us how to have a faith like that of Abraham, that You can say of us also that we are righteous. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.